0: Welcome back to Roses Trash, the accompanying podcast to Read Community. I'm Ryan. I'm Catherine. We're reading along with the third week of the January 2021 calendar, which is themed Place, Location, and Identity. And this particular episode, we're talking about the place that is America. What that place becomes through social interactions, history, the realities of how we live life here. So this episode is titled America and the Racial Imagination."
1: Our first reading piece is by Cheryl I. Harris, uh, Whiteness as Property, and it discusses the way America has construed whiteness as inherently a part of land ownership and part of having rights in our like legal justice system and in our broader society, and that construction of whiteness has allowed us to excuse the oppression of Black people and people of color and Native Americans. And the way that oppression has damaged them.
0: Our next reading is by Devin W. Carbado. It's called Erasing the Fourth Amendment. It's the introduction of a review of legal cases involving the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. So Carbedo is a Black man that immigrated from the UK to the US. And he, in this introduction, oh my god, it's so good. I can't, sometimes I read something where Somebody condenses so much meaning into every single word and sentence they write. And this introduction is an incredible, incredible example. He's talking about Americanizing yourself, which means to racialize yourself. And it takes a more concentrated meaning for Black people um, in becoming a Black American. He tells two stories of encountering police. He puts himself in the minds of the police that have this need to identify these men as Black in order to understand how to act toward them quote, we were trapped inside their racial imagination. And so there's this unfairness about how all of whatever the U.S. has going on fills up his personal life. And there's a sense that you, the individual, are being lost in what America thinks of you. He has this phrase, a police state of mind. Just really good.
1: (laughs) We also have June Jordan's writing in The Land of White Supremacy and she discusses the way white supremacy manifests itself in our culture and in our government in ways that aren't always as nameable as things like the Aryan Nation, those things that are very obvious and clear to us but also is more fundamentally ingrained in our culture can be found and identified in much smaller ways and things that seem cast off are just as dangerous.
0: And finally, we have an essay by Calvin L. Warren called Black Nihilism and the Politics of Hope. It's a philosophical dissection of hope in America and where it intersects with similarly abstract concepts like time and progress. Basically, in this essay, he argues that like all American political language, like the, the, the American dream, or good faith versus bad faith, or a more perfect union, has always depended on violence against Black people. And so these ideologies can't ever wash that out of them. For example, it's impossible to think about American politics without thinking of quote unquote Black suffering. And so there's a point where he lifts the names of dozens of dead Black people, including Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown. This was written in 2015, I believe. And he says, quote, they haunt political discourses of progress, betterment, equality, citizenship, and justice. So he offers black nihilism as an alternative to buying into the idea that the current political institution will ever stop relying on anti-black violence. There's so much shit here, like not content, but just literally like just things that make you feel so bad that like, what is there to say? Like, what is the point of commentary? What is the point of critique or like even discussion when these people already put it forth so eloquently discussing their suffering and like the realness of, black suffering in the US. But I felt like we need to push past that, not out of any type of like idolization of moving forward and forgetting and whatnot. You know, it is trauma in a generational sense and also in a personal sense. And everyone is gonna have a different future, a different future relationship with race and with the racial imagination in America. It's not really helpful to prescribe like what we should be after like a post-racial America, like what that should look like. I think that's so useless. There are people who are moving forward either in their, you know, personal relationship to their racial trauma or academically or in their activist actions or politically. And like, I would I want, I have it in me, I would rather contribute to that than sort of like silence whatever grief that I'm feeling.
1: I mean, I guess also for me, I feel like if I've learned one thing, it's my job as a white person in this movement against racism is mostly a sidelines one. So my reflex is to be like, I share and repost the words of others, but I feel like I don't have a lot of commentary on it because I don't think I've ever had a commentary on the racism that exists and continues to exist that someone else hasn't already said better. But I do agree with you. I feel like sometimes that sense of like, I'm not saying anything new or anything good enough is immobilizing and kind of counterproductive. And it's important that even if you're not doing it perfectly, that you are still doing your best and participating in some way, even if you haven't found the right way to participate. yet.
0: Yeah. And I want to acknowledge that that feeling is not just limited to people who are leftist or who are even liberal to a certain, like as distorted as different people's worldviews may be, including ours, in some way, probably, the magnitude of (laughs) the racial sins of America touched everyone. It doesn't really matter how you processed it or how the echo chambers around you have processed it for you. Everyone is dealing with what is truly the pain of it in some ways productive, in some ways correct, in some ways good and right and just, and in
1: some ways, horribly evil and people try to cope with like issues and with major events like this by like trying to step back and trying to repress and which in itself is a way of processing without realizing that you need to acknowledge it and face it and face the way it either benefits or harms you personally in order to process it fully and to form like an individualized opinion on it rather than like you said just sort of leaning into what your echo chambers have produced for you
0: I mean, it's really hard to talk about a future America that like really gets at any type of level playing field. And I think that's what so many like black people and people of color struggle with when they hear other people look forward to unity and whatnot, because it's just so, so, so far from the reality we live in right now. And the real pain that we're dealing with now, it feels like a dismissal.
1: It feels like people are making sort of platitudes and general optimistic statements about the future without taking the time to address the present and the past. And through their refusal to address the like now moment and the hurt that is happening now, they're ensuring that this like optimistic unified future will never happen.
0: I saw a TikTok. It was basically saying it's hard to take care of my past self, my present self, and my future self all at once. And I think like a lot of people who are... Not presently feeling the pain of like America's racial trauma, they're not caught up in like exactly how difficult that is. Addressing the past in a way that like is honorable to it, really exposing like the pain and just the horrible things that happened. And then right now, feeling like you're doing what you can or feeling like some things are just so completely wrong and you can't do anything about it. And then a lot of sort of centrists or liberals are saying, well, think about the unity of the
1: future, like there will be a brighter day tomorrow and stuff. And you're like,
0: how is this to handle all of that? What?
1: Yeah, it's like people being excited about like when Joe Biden was elected, like, yeah, sure, like I voted for him. But, but like, you know, we're going to like heal our nation when he's elected. I'm like, on January 20th, are people suddenly going to like put oil? all their like MAGA stuff and be like, wow, that was stupid. We regret it. Like, absolutely not without addressing what's happened these past four years and 250 years. It's
0: just like advising your friend through something, you know, when they're upset about something and you don't know when exactly is the right time to tell them they're going to be okay. And in that case, you know, it's a human-to-human mistake. Like, even with the pain, that friend can forgive another friend for jumping the gun on that. But when it's happening, like, all the time on every major media outlet, and it's all these people who have never had to go through what you went through. It is, like, a massive gaslighting
1: campaign. Something I've seen is a lot of, like, you know, senators have, like, talked about how these they condemn these acts and, like, it's anti-democratic and so on and so forth. And then they talk about how, like, you know, honored they are to serve with, like, all of their colleagues. And they're like, I know all of my colleagues, like, doing what they believe is best, even though we may disagree. And it feels disingenuous to me because they know that like some of their colleagues have actively incited this essentially attempt at a military coup. So like they're condemning this attempted coup, but then at the same time praising their colleagues who they know have had a hand in it. And it feels disingenuous. And I was thinking about the way this sort of double think that happens in white peoples because we refuse to acknowledge our whiteness, the way we view blackness as an aspect of someone's identity or the way we view being like a person of color or being a part of the LGBTQA community. Like what's that saying where like when a black woman looks in the mirror, she sees a black woman. And when a white woman looks in the mirror, she sees a woman. And when a white man looks in the mirror, he sees a human. We, we like subtract whiteness from our sense of identity and therefore remove ourselves from these people without realizing that we are very much a part of these people. And we benefit from their actions, even though we condemn them.
0: Firstly, um, just to get our terms correct, what happened today, the protests forcing themselves into the Capitol building, the Senate electoral count to confirm Joe Biden is very different from what the technical definition of a military coup is. That would be a political party most likely usurping power over the state military. In this case, it would be maybe more like an armed who obviously, the problem is more with the fact that like Capitol Police were supposed to be alerted. They were r- repeatedly reminded to be alert about something like this happening. And instead, the Pentagon blocked the deployment of the National Guard, which again, I have like mixed feelings about. Today was such an interesting clusterfuck of politics. <laughs> of law and order politics these major like shithead republicans being like oh no no no, we can't like biden has has been elected like we can't do anything about it and then like pence being like please listen to the police like everyone trying to be as pro-police and pro-MAGA as possible. I saw a lot of reporters say, like, Trump's base got out of his control. And that also I had mixed feelings about, because no matter how much out of control they are, he's still receiving their support. And I don't think that, like, Trump supporters are going to come away from this
1: dispirited. I think they're going to feel very encouraged by what they saw today. They'll feel vindicated, for sure. It's like the Catch-22. Of dealing with them is that, like, whenever they face any type of rebuttal or whenever they get shut down, like, people talk about, like, oh, like, haha, like, Trump has been removed from Twitter for 12 hours. And it's like,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: is just going to make them feel even more just. Like, it just feeds into the narrative.
0: Very narcissistic cycle.
1: Uh, Warren's black
0: nihilism and the politics of hope that, like, just really struck me. Like, it's true. Everything that every piece of reputation that the US has ever built about being a place of opportunity. Regardless of, you know, the opportunities that it is handed out, the mobility that certain people have experienced, all of that reputation was built on so much suffering on the other side. Like, I don't have to negate the experiences of people who, like the positive experiences of America in order to condemn how it's all built on just horrifying things. It, it is really enough to make you seriously consider, like, should we just wipe this slate clean? Like, should we just disband just everything? And then it sucks to have the thought that, well, that might not happen.
1: And we might have to work with what we have. I think for me, that's kind of something like, when I see and have these discussions about the past, especially when it comes to things like white privilege, people are like, well, it's not my fault that like, you know, these things happen in the past. Like, I wasn't born yet. I'm not responsible for it. And it, it feels like we're stuck between, like, people, they fixate on the past, and they're like, because it is the past, and then be like, well, I can't control it. Or they want to pretend it didn't happen and go into the future without understanding the way the past influences the future.
0: And I think it's also on a personal level, you know, interge- intergenerational trauma is real. And that is just one iteration of a relation a personal relationship with race that exists with you from before you're conceived to after you're dead there's no reason to pretend that that relationship doesn't exist in some form not intergenerational trauma but some sort of like nostalgia and propaganda related thing for white america so yeah one of the most like underappreciated things about living in the racial imagination of america is underappreciated is kind of a positive connotation, but it's just it's not grasped the impact of having to drag out these horribly painful topics in so many innocuous situations. Like every time you talk if you think about America, you think about like Warren said, like justice or peace or happiness or progress. In America you have to remember like just the utter pain that this like the greatest country in the world is built on. I don't think we like acknowledge ourselves for that enough. And on the flip side, r- realize how much of that we must be blocking out, not just because, you know, we want to be ignorant, but maybe because we don't want to be in pain.
1: It, like some people are desensitized, but I feel like that is also
0: part of the impact
1: of it. I feel like that's something or like something I saw like starting in the summer with like Black Lives Matter and George Floyd protests is like that people talked about like alley fatigue, which is like, frankly, a comical sort of phrase to me from like seeing all these posts on Instagram and seeing all the news stories and hearing about it constantly. People talk about how they're like getting alley fatigue be like, oh, like, you know, we need to, like, take a break and, like, protect our mental health when really what they're experiencing is a short-term fraction of what it is to, like, actually be, in this case, a Black person living in America and to have, like, see this every day constantly or, like, have these connotations and memories 24-7.
0: I mean, our different racial experiences might actually be the reason why I actually completely understand that type of fatigue. With anything, like, you can't be in your pain all the time. Um, Even if you are like realistically in your pain all the time, you know, like we just can't live that way. Another reason to not live that way is because you cannot be a good activist, teacher, student, ally, if you are living in your pain all the time, like you're you're not taking care of yourself and your work will suffer for it. When did you realize that you were living in not just a country, but a racial
1: imagination? Probably around high school. My introduction to a lot of like social justice and politics was through Tumblr, for Mm -hmm. better or for worse, had its pros and cons. But that's when I started reading like personal posts people made and people sharing news. That really opened my eyes to a whole new experience. I like really didn't grasp the concept of race fully until then. Like even though like logically I grasped it, like it wasn't something that like, I realized with certainty until then. Did you know the people you were having conversations with
0: or what were like those conversations
1: like? Do you remember any moments? I mean, I honestly didn't really have conversations with people through Tumblr. I really just read and ingested other people's com- or content is what I did.
0: Yeah, I feel like, you know, that's another thing. Like, It doesn't really make sense to condemn social media as like a tool for activism because it is what it is we should be personally monitoring ourselves to make sure that we're not engaging in it harmfully. I mean like Tumblr really hit like right when the biggest thing in my life was being like getting approval and so since everyone on Tumblr was being like you have to reblog this like you have to spread this like if you want to be a good
1: person basically you have to care it was a very like I don't wanna say militant sort of introduction to these type of things, but it's a very black and white introduction. And I feel like for me, like my grasp of the concept of race, even though Tumblr broadened my horizon, like horizons like drastically made me like understand the depth of or like the magnitude of the pain that was like still happening on a daily basis, it still didn't make it real because it was mm-hmm. still like a written format. Like it's just still an intangible concept on the screen.
0: Now that it's been Eight to 10 years since I've been on social media and seeing all the social media activism, obviously my relationship to it has changed. And it's changed, I think, where now I try to really share things that are personal. I think, is this something that I feel like helped me understand something? Is this concept something that I think would change a lot of people's thinking if they were exposed to it? And then in that way, instead of social media becoming this thing where I'm like drowning, it's more like I get to send a letter like to everyone who's
1: going to see my story or something my experience like over the years on social media like has definitely made me really aware of the echo chamber I've created for myself on social media unintentionally but i am like looking at the people who follow my account which is not that many and the people who like watch my stories which is even less or like interact with my posts which i almost never post so not much like people i know some people from high school not many mostly people i know from college which is like a liberal, like private art school, and it's incredibly insular. And that's something where it's not that I think that these people are wrong or anything like that, but I think sometimes I often question myself. I'm like to take a step back and be like, is this an opinion that I like wholeheartedly agree with, or is this something that like I've just seen so many of the other people like I follow follow each other, follow each other in this little circular way where blog or like we post these things. And am I just like continuing the cycle by reposting it because it's like the thing to do? Or is it something I've actually thought about?
0: With anything, if you're not critically thinking while you're engaging with it, it's not going to stay with you. And so you're doing the content or the message or the service by just half heartedly engaging with it. And I think that's actually maybe something a lot of people would disagree with because they're saying, you know, they're like, if you send it, if you share it, it boosts it in the algorithm and stuff. I just don't think that's my responsibility because my primary responsibility is to actually be changed by it and then do that justice work, not to yeah. boost some posts in the algorithm. What happens is that people think social media is the world. This is like totally getting into next week's topic. But people think that social media is the world. Um, they forget that there's way, way, way more important things you can do to, to, to support marginalized groups. And they forget that there's activists who are not just in their 20s or in their teens, but activists who have been doing that work for decades and decades. And they're not just people whose words you should read or hear, but people whose work you should support and contribute to. When I really take full stock of that responsibility, my other responsibilities obviously get less of my time. And one of those is to participate in reposting social media activism. When you're spending hours on social media, feeling like this is such an important thing, like people need to know about it, it's, pr- it's probably not going to be nurturing like you. It's physically, you know, hard on your eyes. Your brain is distracted by a million things. So you're not able to focus and hone any type of skill. You're not spending time exactly with yourself. And so you're losing out on that. Like we have to balance as if anything, like you can be freaking saving the world, human rights lawyer or whatever, but you can't be spending all your time at work. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help you go back to work the next day and do it right. And I feel that way about any activist work. Another thing I want to point out is that a lot of the times getting away from performative work and doing like real work is embarrassing and it's it's cringy and it's painful because race in America is painful. And so a lot of people might like see like a, a white friend like sending their friend of color $20 and be like, oh, like that's so personal and that's so like, it it feels like it could be wrong and it feels like it could be patronizing and stuff but obviously like you're responsible in that relationship to make sure you guys are you know participating in this thing together kind of and I think it's like really helpful because there's no way to get away from racial pain we shouldn't try to and instead you're nurturing a personal relationship that you have with a friend of color assuming
1: of course that you're all you're on the same page I think that's really like one of my intentions for 2021 and for the future in general is to find more like tangible physical ways that I can take action. I think also, like, for me, I always get caught up in like, what if this action is performative? Or like, even if I am doing something tangible, like donating money or sending money directly to a person, I'm like, what if I'm just doing this? So, for like brownie points, like, what if I'm just doing this that so, like those things are like, I'm a good person? I try and like, I mean, obviously you shouldn't do it just to try and like appear to be a good person. I try and I'm like, okay, like the impact of it is positive. And that's really like the first thing that matters is like making an overall positive impact. And then like, I can do that work with myself um, like later, as long as I know that I'm in the moment making a positive impact.
0: I think engaging at all, obviously the bar is on the ground, but some for some people it is like, it is incredibly difficult to unlearn things mentally and then also to recover from any type of racial trauma, like emotionally. You, everyone will do something performative. Like everyone will have either that phase or that continued relapse into performative actions all the time. And again, to me, like it comes from people, their um, motivation in doing activist work in order to be a good person. Obviously, that is a complex that you would have to interrogate throughout your life, and that's no less true with actual activist work.
1: Yeah, and I think also, like it's okay to want to be a good person, but the way that like manifests is what can be like deeply harmful or not. Wanting to volunteer at a homeless shelter or like food pantry or something like that, because you wanna be a good person, I think is fine. But like when people are like, I wanna be a good person and therefore I'm going to go to someplace in Africa to spend like one week with children, that manifestation of the same desire is like very, very different and is like harmful.
0: Yeah, and I want to encourage people not to view their experiences as like net good, net bad. Sometimes you just gotta be like, okay, well, I did that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay, like I didn't know shit and then I went to a country in Africa and I spent one week with him and I was super inspired and I made it my Facebook profile picture. What are you going to get from denying that you did that? Like that's who you were then. Like that's what you did then. It's completely fine. Sometimes I was thinking about this today. But then if you tell me something stupid I said in high school to you, like, particularly about food or, like, clothing or something like that, and I'm really, like, that is so crazy that I said that. Why did I say that? That's so stupid. <laughs> it's literally that easy, <laughs> you know? So like, the important thing is to not focus on my embarrassment and to instead focus on, like, oh, shoot, do I have to, like, make up for this right now? Like, do I have to, like, apologize? Like, should I be apologizing right now? That's what, like, you should be thinking about.
1: And especially when it comes to smaller scale things like that. I remember, like, I'm sure I can remember one or two of the things I brought up to you. Like, when I bring it up later, I'm always like, that was just funny. Like, you know, (laughs) like, when I'm thinking back, I'm like, yeah, it was pretty funny when she said that. I've definitely said things in the past that, like, weren't funny, even with time. Like, I saw someone make a post where they're talking about how, like, they, it's like a a Black woman. Like, all these white people come up to me and they tell me, like, oh, my relatives are so racist. And I'm standing there, like why do I need to know that like <laughs> you know and I was like oh my god, I've done that. Like, holy god. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just like wanted to sink to the ground and like I definitely walled in it for a minute I was like oh I've been that stupid like but at the end of there I was like okay well I did it now I know not to do it like obviously I don't think it was something worth going back through and apologizing to like every single person I've done that to right right um but like yeah at some point you have to be like I fucked up now I just gotta not mm-hmm. do that again and try and be better about it
0: I think like once you really start growing away from the idea that I need to be a good person and instead you think about like, okay, what is the good thing that I should do right now? You know, if you're mature in your unlearning, you don't have to be thinking about like, oh my God, like I feel so guilty all the time about this and this and this because you should be secure in
1: knowing that you're living your life in a way that is in accordance with your morals. Yeah, with things like with like guilt, like people, they get so bogged up in it that they like it prevents them from moving past it and being the good they're like feel guilty because they feel like they weren't a good person and then that guilt prevents them from becoming a good person because they get so just enmeshed in it and they project it onto all of their like interactions and Mm -hmm. actions and I mean obviously I'm like you should maybe sometimes you should feel shame and guilt for a couple of things but (laughs) do your best
0: (laughs) okay to kind of turn the conversation it kind of goes with the earlier question about, like, when did you figure out you were living in a racial imagination? What values, stories, scriptures, or theologies, or traditions ground the work for racial justice? So this is not just, like, when did you realize that you're a racist? But, like, when did you realize that you wanted to be anti-racist? And, like, what in you or in your upbringing made that possible for you?
1: I was always raised with, like, these, like, good, like, old-fashioned American values. Like, I remember watching the Andy Griffith show with my dad growing up. And my dad, who grew up in rural Idaho, like very small town with very traditional upbringing, like, and it was always like this idea of like, you know, sort of wholesomeness, you know, like you need to be a good person and you need to be just and kind to others. And like, you know, you need to work hard and you need to be fair and like reading books like the Laura Inkles Wilder books, like growing up, these ideas of like courage and hard work like love thy neighbor and this sense of community and like care for other people. And that was something I was like, yes, we have that. Like we are those, like those people. And I am one of those people who like holds these values. And when I started to read more and more like personal narratives on, on the internet of people talking about like how they didn't experience those values in their world, those values weren't applied to them because of their race. And like, and I, it was like this disconnect. I'm like, Oh, like everyone, I know like says we are these good people like I want to be this good person and like I've always just assumed I was this good person so like why am I not doing something about that like
0: yeah I can definitely relate to that I only read the first three books yeah the third one was the best for me because it was like completely a different story about different people I think and then I went to the fourth book and I was like what it's not the old family
1: and I don't want to. <laughs> I liked it when she was dating Almanzo. I thought that was great. -hmm. Laura Ingalls Wilder, (laughs) like, really influenced me as a child. And then I got older and I was like, wait, potted blackface." It it was, like, one scene. I don't remember what book it was in. And also, like, the general being pioneers is inherently contributing to the genocide of Native Americans. (laughs) But I remember the bulldog that they had.
0: That's what I mean. Like, life is complicated because, again, America is just a racial clusterfuck and we will have horribly unethical memories and like it is what it is like you've got to do the work that needs to be done now you know
1: i cannot remember who said this at all but what was it was a human rights activist or and he said like you know because i love america that's why i criticize her that's how i feel too
0: i really relate to on a like a personal level and like i said i don't know how much you know just my personality had to do with me caring about like Sort of big picture stuff structural stuff you know i was never like a super detail oriented person <laughs> first of all i always felt like if there's a problem you need to solve it and second of all if you're going to solve it you have you better solve the whole fucking thing yeah and like i think that was just a really big part of like just who like who i was born to be but in terms of like like actually becoming acquainted with like the real the real issues and like caring about like reading up on stuff and like caring about it enough to make it my major or like my career and whatnot. So I grew up with a lot of like um, religious presence in my life, like Christian presence in my life, and went to lots of Sunday schools and stuff. And when you're in Sunday school, like it's pretty simple. Like the gospel's pretty simple, you know. They don't like spring the being gay and bad stuff until you're in like sixth grade <laughs> or like you don't get an abortion. I remember I was in fifth grade doing like a religion workbook because I went to a private elementary school. And we had like religion classes, just like you would have any other class. And we had a workbook. It was pretty like lax. Like it was, we just did the workbook basically. I remember just like out of nowhere, there was this one lesson. It was literally like a quarter page. It was like a scenario where this girl is pregnant with her boyfriend. And it just said that like, like Lisa got pregnant with her boyfriend. She doesn't know if she's ready to keep the baby or have the baby or whatever. Should she get an abortion? And I was like, I don't know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like teacher, like would normally call on a student for the answer, but instead of calling on a student, I just remember her being like, the answer is no, because everyone made, like God made everyone and he wants everyone, like, you know, he, he planned for everyone. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like, I, don't, I guess, like, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> anyway, that was a total side tangent. My point was there wasn't a lot of that when I was growing up and instead it was all these stories about how Jesus was this like superhero and he like made people made sick people better and he comforted people who were crying and there was a there's a big phrase like a couple big Christian phrases that you grow up and one of them is that like God needs love and love is God and of course there's like the golden rule you know like you should act for other people with the kindness that you would want for yourself and like I completely absorbed all of that, I think.
1: I, I, like, honestly think that that made me care about people. I remember my dad used to have a ruler, or he still has it. It's a little wooden ruler, says so like, a golden, or, like, the golden rule, like, treat others the way you would have them treat yourself. Yeah. It just made so much
0: sense to me. I was like, well, yeah, that's how people, like, don't fight each other. Obviously, I had to unlearn some of that law and order type of thing. I really just wanted to feel safe as a kid, and, like, I wanted to be a good girl. I wanted to listen to adults and have adults. Like, I, I didn't want... There to be chaos. And then I think I was able to unlearn that because in my personality also was this feeling that like adults weren't better than me. <laughs> so, like, I wanted everyone's approval, not just adults. And I also thought, like, why are people asking for my approval? Like, it just egalitarianism made so much sense to me. Me just like, you know, fitting into the environments that I was in and like me getting all of that positive feedback and attention. I could acknowledge that I had those advantages, those privileges, and also be like, well, that's why, like, I why it turned out so good
1: you know I think something for me that kind of like changed my mindset about like my experience with the world not necessarily specifically tied to race but my parents have never used corporal punishment on me like ever that's they're very much against that and my mom told me like when I was in elementary school she's like yes some people because it was again Laurie Ingalls Wilder oh honest, yeah thanks I love
0: those scenes.
1: and my mom was like you know some children or like some parents think their children but like we believe that's wrong and we believe that you should never hit people and you should never hit your child and so we don't do that we use consequences instead so I was like yeah yeah but in my head I was like no one actually hits their child that doesn't really happen that's absurd like you know that would be so crazy if someone actually did that and when I was like fourth or fifth grade I went to my friend's birthday party and she like talked back to her dad and he got really angry and spanked her at the birthday party in front of everyone and I was like mom take me home like (laughs) I was like she wasn't kidding that moment kind of like was a click for me I was like oh like not everyone gets this that this experience that I had like, even though I was told that my experience wasn't universal, I still thought it was until I saw otherwise.
0: Yeah, again, like, the point of your life broadening, either psychologically as a child or experientially as an adult, the point is not to sit in it and be like, wow, I'm, I don't know anything, and I'm so stupid, and I need to find out everything that's wrong with the world right now. That's not the point. The point is to recognize that there's work you can do, you know? Yeah. I'm not talking to you. Like, I'm...
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember in that moment. I was like, I was like, this has to stop. Like, you can't do that. But of course, I didn't say that because it's like I'm gonna be next.
0: I have some crazy stories about like how scared I was of my parents, like, like, I, and those things, used to, those memories used to make me really sad when I was younger, like high school, middle school, and like what happens when you recover from trauma is that you remember it for what it was, and you recognize how horrible that was, and then you're like, but it's not making me feel anything now. In a way, I, like, really am aligned with Warren's Black nihilism. I just feel like life is trauma. (laughs) And, like, it doesn't do you any good to pick apart all of your actions and, like, figure out how you can control it and control your exposure to trauma. One of the best things you can do is just to shore up your resilience and to remember that no matter what happens to you, you are still worthy of, like, love and
1: positive attention and improvement and working on yourself. We have. So much potential to do, like really insane amounts of good for ourselves and for others around us, and we restrict that potential by both by denying the past and by allowing ourselves to live in the past. This has been Roses All Trash, the podcast accompanying Read Community. This has been our January 2021 week three episode. Um, I'm Catherine. I'm Ryan, and we hope you all have a great week.
0: Yeah, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, YouTube, anywhere that you would get your podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at Rosedell Trash or my personal r r r y n or Catherine's personal Catherine Like, subscribe, etc. We love you. We respect you, and we're rude. See you next week. <laughs>
1: Bye.